Lord God, we thank you that you are available to help us understand your word. You give us the, the, the hunger for it, the passion for it. By your word, you speak life into us. In your word, there is light, and it's a light to our path. It leads and guides us, just like the star led those wise men from the east. So your light shines in the darkness, and we ask that your spirit would grant us the ability to see your light and to see in it and according to it according to your spirit and to your word, so that we can understand and apply what your word and your spirit have for us today. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen. The Christmas story, like God's story altogether, the story of the Bible, begins in the dark. It begins, if you will, in the night. It begins in a place of chaos and confusion in which the Lord himself speaks order, peace, coherence. There's a purpose of the Lord that is revealed in his word. And his word is light. You recognize this from the story of Genesis, no doubt from Genesis chapter 1, when the Holy Spirit himself was hovering over the waters that are described, a kind of symbolic description of this disordered situation in which God, in that dark place, speaks light. Let there be light, he says. And when he speaks it, it is. And the light shines in the darkness and brings order to the disorder and being, brings forth creative production. Things are created in fact, you could say it's the first harvest of heaven, the creation of all things that is born forth from the word of God like a, like a seed that when it's planted in the ground can't be seen, but underneath the surface is working to bring forth life. And out of the fruitfulness of that word, the purpose of the Lord is fulfilled. Now this is the Christmas story. And while many of the Gospels include, well, I should say two of them at least, include a specific arrangement of telling the story of Jesus' birth on earth, that is Matthew and Luke, both tell us the nativity story. John, in his gospel, the fourth gospel, provides a kind of alternate and more symbolically um, led description of Jesus' arrival into creation. And he goes all the way back to the beginning and uses the same kind of language, that is used in Genesis 1. You'll find it in John 1. In the beginning was the word. The logos is the Greek term there, which refers to the wisdom of God, not just a linguistic term, a word, but also this robust conceptual life, the wisdom of God, animate, active, personified. That is the word, the logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And nothing that was made was made without Him. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it, cannot even comprehend it. Those ideas are both wrapped up in the Greek text there that the darkness can't snuff out the light, and it, it also can't suss out the light. It can't figure out what the light does because the light is different from the dark. The light has wisdom that the dark does not have. So you and I who have lived in the dark and been people who walked in the dark, to us, a light has shined. Even the prophet Isaiah, speaking by that same spirit that hovered over the waters, that hovered over Mary, that brought forth the word in flesh, which is Jesus Christ. So that spirit spoke through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus to say about the birth of Jesus that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light because he would go on to say, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The prophet Isaiah also said that that child would be born to a virgin. And so it was. And the prophet Isaiah also said that that child would grow up to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with sin. Not a sinner himself, but someone who would come to the closest, most intimate reckoning with sin. Not his, but ours. He who knew no sin would become sin for us, 
so that you and I, who live in this world of darkness and sometimes have darkness within us and have done deeds of darkness and still struggle with darkness and do not know the righteousness of God except that God shows the righteousness of God by the light of God, we, who are sinners, come to be the righteousness of God because he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God, God's own children. This is the prophetic message that Jesus fulfills and that Jesus continues because his mission is not finished. His work on earth as our Savior, he has accomplished, but he is coming again as our King. And so that's the hope that you and I live in. And it's waiting upon that hope that is a principal part of our worship and faith. It means that we don't live just according to what we can see. We live according to the light and the life and the word and the promise of the Lord. And that's a prophetic way of living. That means it requires the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's not something you and I can achieve on our own. It's only available to us because the grace of God by his spirit is at work in us because of the work of Jesus Christ done for us. These are dark days, but really the message of the scripture is that they've been dark in many ways from the beginning. And the darkness is an aspect of sin. It is the result of disobedience. It is our turning away from God that turns us away from the light and into the dark. But even in the midst of that darkness, of any hardship, the Lord is speaking hope. That's the harvest that you and I are living for and believing in if we are following Jesus. It's a harvest of hope, not just wishful thinking, but faithful living rooted in the reality that God, who says something, will do it. But not always in the timeline that you and I might prefer. The Christmas story begins in the dark, and I think you and I can take hope and encouragement in that today, because I know that many of us are struggling with this particular season that we are in. I don't just mean the Christmas season, although it's hard, isn't it? to have Christmas going on and yet not feel as though Christmas is going on because of the way that things are going in our society right now with COVID and other chaotic crises playing out in our society and even around the world. And who knows what the particular concerns of your life are? Well, you know, and the Lord knows. I can't speak to all of them, but no doubt among those that are listening today, there are those that are dealing with disease, discouragement, depression, death, those that have lost loved ones and are grieving and mourning, those who maybe have lost loved ones long ago, but the Christmas season is a fresh reminder that you no longer get to be face-to-face -face, in person with that one that you love, that family member or spouse or maybe even a child or friend, and you're missing them so much in this season, and you're dealing with that and the, and the the discouragement that comes from that. Maybe it's debt, maybe it's failure, maybe it's sin, maybe it's temptation, maybe it's a mix of many of these. A crisis in a relationship or in your career, a loss of job or provision, or maybe it's simply just this sense of anxiety that seems to flow like a tidal wave over our world and over our hearts in days like these. That's what it is to be people walking in darkness. And it is to that circumstance that the Lord shines his light and says, begin to see what I am doing because what I have begun, I will carry forth and I will carry out. We have been following along the mission of the Magi in this Advent series because they are an example of people who were in the dark. They didn't know the God of Israel, by virtue of their birth or, or culture. They weren't born into the covenant people that God had carved out for himself from among all humanity, the children of Abraham, who became the children of Israel, the nation of God. But the reason why these wise men from the East would come to know the God of Israel is because the people of Israel went through a time of hardship because of their sin. Because even though God was faithful to them, they, like we, 
faltered in their faithfulness. They failed God. They disobeyed. They engaged in idolatry. And the Lord said, I am going to discipline you. Not because I hate you, not because I'm opposed to you, but because I'm for you, because I love you. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And maybe you and I, brother, sister, could affirm right now that the discipline of the Lord, which none of us particularly like or want in our flesh, nevertheless, we should recognize is a, is a reminder of his love, is an agent of his love. It's a good thing when God disciplines us because like all good discipline administered in love, if we yield to it, it will bring us back on track, back into the light. But through that, God will also accomplish other things. So in bringing his people Israel into a situation where the people around them, the, the nations around them became dominant, and they were exiled into Babylon, the people of Israel exiled into Babylon. Nevertheless, in Babylon, they found a closer commitment to God once again. In their hardship, it drove them to the Lord. Wouldn't it be good if you and I are responding in 2020 that way? I suppose that we could look at this year and say, this has been a terrible year and uh, terrible uh, uh, atrocities and, and terrible pandemic and I could be angry with God about that if I chose to be. I don't know that it does any good. In fact, my suggestion to you is that it does exactly the opposite. There's no good that comes from being angry with God, although if that's what you're feeling, go ahead and be honest with God. He can take it. You may as well be honest with yourself if that's what you're feeling too. But as you consider that feeling, consider this. God is not at fault for the wrong in our world. And in fact, God's word is all about what is right and righteous. If there is blame to be laid in our world, most of it falls at our own feet. There's also an enemy of our soul who is opposed to God, and he has been at work in our world constantly trying to create discord and, and confusion. And you might wonder why it is that the Lord would allow the devil and his minions to continue their plans and practices, but be confident in this. God doesn't allow anything unless he has a purpose that he will accomplish. God will work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. The Lord has already dealt with the devil. There is a plan to be carried out. And believe me, that plan is one of victory. But you and I, in this season, we have an opportunity to choose who we believe and where we place our focus. And sometimes, in a season in which we've gotten distracted by other things or when we've become more concerned with our physical well-being, our creature comforts, our material wealth, our own ideas of right and wrong, we may have gotten so far off track that God allows something to occur in the world around us that even though it is devastating, there's a blessing to be found within it if we would recognize, I need to go back to God. I need to get focused on God. Who else has the words of life? Who else can give me the wisdom to understand? Who else can be a light in the dark? The devil's never going to be a light in the dark to you. If the devil is leading you down a path, you can be sure it's the primrose path of destruction. It may be wide and open and pleasant, but as the word of God says, that wide and pleasant road ends in death. But there's a narrow way that comes from focusing on the Lord. And the people of Israel in the Babylonian exile determined to follow the narrow way of God, to revere his word, to seek his spirit, and to worship him. And in doing so, not only did they receive the light of the Lord during a time of, of bitter hardship in the Babylonian exile, but they also became the light of the Lord. That is, the Lord used them to shine a light on his word and on who he is, so that the Babylonians and later the Persians had among them those who said, these people serve a real God. And this God is not just the God of Israel, but a God over all the earth. They came to know and love his word in such a way that they saw in it signs, such as the sign that said there'll be a star. In the book of Numbers, it's described rising in Judah, a savior who would be king. And so they looked for that star and seeing it, they followed it. And following the star and the scriptures, they found in the spirit guidance that led them even to Bethlehem and a place where they bowed down before this babe that was born as a king of kings and a lord of lords. And they offered him gifts. Matthew 2.11 says they prostrated themselves, which is really literally coming down on their faces, and it is an act of worship. And then they gave of this tremendous treasure. 
And of those three gifts, each one has a prophetic message. But the third of them may be most prophetic of all. And it's why we come to mark the message of myrrh in today's message, in today's sermon. I want to take you to that point in the message by first reviewing some of what we've already talked about. This whole season that we are in is a season of waiting. It is a season of anticipation. Now, each Christmas we go through that activity of anticipation, in part to remind us of what God has already done, but also in part to prepare us for what God is still doing and what is yet to come. And in fact, in a, in a year like this, it may be uh, most valuable for us to re be reminded that even though waiting with patience is difficult, there is a tremendous reward that comes to those who wait upon the Lord. There is a Savior that comes, as God promised, and He's a Savior for all people. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your color, your, your ethnicity, your nationality. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter what your particular history has been. Jesus Christ came for you, personally, you. In fact, I want to ask you to do something. Will you say this? Will you repeat this after me? Put your hand on your chest when you say it and say, Jesus Christ came from me. Say that. Jesus Christ came from me. He was born in Bethlehem for you. He carried out his ministry to the people around him, but he had you in his heart and in his mind, even as he did that. You say, how is that possible? It's impossible unless the prophetic spirit of God was anointing him, but that's exactly the case. That's what made him the Christ, the fact that he was anointed in the Spirit. He was born to be anointed in the Spirit and to go to the cross for you. He died for you, to rise again for you, to be a light that would banish the darkness, life that would overcome death, and the first fruit of a harvest that is worthy to be celebrated in all seasons, at all times, no matter what the situation, no matter how perverse the times, no matter how distressed the circumstance, no matter how desperate the disease or pandemic, there is a harvest of hope that is active and alive around us right now at all times when you and I are following the light of the Savior who died for us. When we do, his seed of life is sown into us. And so that's why at this season, when we celebrate his coming, his arrival on earth, we are also reminding of our, ourselves that that arrival was not recognized by everyone. There were people who were right there at the time who missed it because they weren't looking for it. They weren't looking for God. And in the middle of whatever darkness was dominating their life or whatever selfishness or greed was most preeminent in their own heart, they were more interested in following their own path or fulfilling their own will. Even if they, they framed it in the language of religion, as many of the religious leaders of Jesus' time did, in their heart, they weren't trusting the Lord. They were trusting in their own wisdom. They were trusting in their own expertise about his word. And, and all the while, they were missing the light. So they were off the path. Jesus said to those religious leaders, if you would simply recognize that you were blind, then I would enable you to see. He told them that after he had literally just healed a man who was born blind. And they were upset by that because they didn't believe that Jesus represented God. Can you imagine seeing someone healed supernaturally from blindness from birth by someone who is preaching about God, preaching the truth, preaching love, and yet being so opposed to him, that you ignore the reality that God is at work in your midst. Here is God with us, Emmanuel, but they can't see it. And yet they said, we see better than anyone else. Follow us, we'll be your guide. But Jesus said, you are blind guides. You're the blind leading the blind. And since you say you can see, that's why you remain blind. And there's a greater judgment that comes upon you. But if you would recognize, I can't see, I don't know the way, then yield to God and say, show me the way. And when God leads and you say, this is a narrow way, it's hard, it's scary, it seems to me like I'm always falling off the path. And God says, don't be afraid, trust me. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. God says, I will guide you, but you won't always be able to see. 
you'll have to follow the sound of my voice. You'll have to follow the guidance of my word. You'll have to trust in my spirit and submit yourself to my ways. It's not easy, but it is fruitful. It is a productive promise that comes from God. It is his word that speaks light into our darkness and gives a pathway into his harvest and into his peace. Isaiah chapter 9, which we've already discussed. The people see light when they turn to the Lord. The light rises at Christmas time every year anew. It's a reminder to our world, weary and darkened, that there is a Prince of Peace who has come, who is present, who is coming again, and whose kingdom is everlasting. He's our Savior. We needed, first and foremost, to be saved from our sin, to be brought out of that darkness, and he has done it. He died so that you and I could live. He was the seed sown that has brought forth a productive harvest because he is our redeemer. And so we trust in him and we'll wait upon him because we desire that when his kingdom is fully visible, we are already established in it. And it's a kingdom that is everlasting. So the light that rises, like the star that began to shine in the sky and was a guide to the Magi from the east, also rules. It carries us steady on the path. He rules over our lives, and we participate in his rulership. We really make active and effective his kingship in our life when we trust in him through our prayer, through our worship, asking for the wisdom that we need, seeking his guidance, with fear and trembling working out our salvation, and yet always with the faithful expectation that God, who's begun a good work, will also complete it, that he multiplies what he produces in us. When they came to worship Jesus, they brought gifts, and the first of these that is described is gold. We talked about how the gold that is given reflects the reality that Jesus is a king. Gold is the substance of kings. It is the treasury of, of kings, and it comes from kings. These magi of the east bring it out of the treasure houses of their kings, to lay it at the feet of this king, because Jesus is king of kings, lord of lords. And his kingdom is one of harvest. It's a plentiful harvest. It's rich in resource. When the Lord is ruler over your life, he will provide for you. It doesn't mean that you and I are always comfortable. It certainly doesn't mean that we always have everything that we want. But it does mean that we will have what we need when we are relying upon him. If you will seek first the kingdom of God, then the king who is king over that kingdom will grant everything necessary unto you for good and godly living. This kingdom continues with justice and righteousness. So you see how we're progressing through this passage in Isaiah 9 and seeing it revealed even from the very beginning of Jesus' life in his ministry. Each of the Magi's gifts reflects a reality about this light that is being birthed in the darkness, this life that is bringing forth justice and righteousness. It is light that has risen for us and rules for us and reigns, which is to say that the light of the Lord provides what God most desires that you and I would desire. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for love. The righteousness of God is revealed in love. When someone came to Jesus and said, what are, what's the most important commandment? It's another way of saying, among all the things that are necessary to be done, which is most right? Which is best and, and first in the eyes of God? If I'm supposed to seek first the kingdom of God, what comes first in the kingdom? Because whatever comes first in the kingdom is righteousness, right? And what comes first in the kingdom is essentially the king, because God is love, 1 John 4, 8 says. And in God, real love is productive and plentiful, multiplies. So you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And how? How will that love manifest in you? How will it multiply? By loving your neighbor as yourself. In this, all the law and the prophets are wrapped up. In that seed of love, all of God's will and righteousness. 
is fulfilled. If you and I will hunger and thirst for the real love of God, which actually doesn't look like love to many people in our world because they don't know what real love is. They're wandering in the dark. So when you are blind and you're wandering in the dark and suddenly a light shines, sometimes the light itself is blinding. That's what Paul found out on the road to Damascus. The light of the Lord suddenly shined so bright in his life that he was blinded. But God ultimately let the scales fall from his eyes so that Paul, who had been eager and, and hungry and desirous to kill Christians because he felt they were at odds with God, suddenly realized it was he that was at odds with God. And yet when God gave him that, that enlightenment, he began to live according to the righteousness of God, a real life of love that led him into a real challenging mission, a mission that could only be fulfilled by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. For you see, Jesus Christ didn't come to be anointed by the Holy Spirit in such a way that you and I would simply look at that anointing and go, wow, what a superman, what a superhero. But I could never be that. He came for exactly the opposite reason. He came so that you and I would be that. He came to be the firstborn of many brethren. He came that you and I would also be anointed in the Spirit. In fact, it was so necessary in his view for that anointing to come that Jesus, when he rose again and said to his followers, now you're going to go and you're going to baptize all nations in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and teach them to follow my ways. He also said, but wait for the baptism of fire, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it is the zeal of the Spirit of the Lord that will accomplish these things. It is the anointing that breaks the yoke of bondage. It is the anointing that bursts forth with light. It is the anointing that grants wisdom. It is the anointing, the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit that conceives life and multiplies life spiritually from all of us. In the book of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord makes it clear. It's the passion. That's another way that you could describe that or translate that term from the Hebrew there. The passion of God is what will accomplish this. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And in that spirit, you and I receive prophetic insight. What I mean by prophetic is not just about forecasting the future, although very often the Lord does speak in such ways that you and I know what is necessary for us to know in order to walk the path he's called us to, in order to carry out the mission to which we've been commissioned, in order to, to, uh, to harvest the harvest that he has called us to. There are things about the future that he will, he will share, he will show, but sometimes the prophetic is most experienced in the moment, in the immediate circumstance in which you realize, I don't know what's around the corner, I don't know what's next, but I, I sense from the Lord, according to his word, in harmony with his people, I sense that this is how I am to pray today, or this is where I need to put my focus. I'm reminded of where I need to be um, placing the emphasis of my life, to be bringing every thought captive to Christ. The prophetic is not just about the future, it is about the present as well. In fact, it's about the past. It's about past, present, and future being mutually integrated in a reality in which we recognize we don't need to know everything as long as we know the Lord. The Lord will guide us. But it's also an awareness that in this present moment, there are going to be things that we don't understand and that are hard to face. There, there's going to be pain. There's going to be trial. There is going to be challenge. There will be ways in which we are tested. And the prophetic anointing of the Holy Spirit pierces and penetrates through the hardship of that the sorrow of it, the grief of it, and brings inside of it a bitter blessing, a mysterious messianic message of hope. The power and the passion of the Lord is perhaps most experienced in the times of our lives that are most challenging. Let me say that again. The power, the passion, the love of the Lord is often most deeply experienced in our lives when we are going through our hardest challenges, our greatest struggles, our, our most intimidating obstacles and, and things to overcome. 
And yet, in that, there's a blessing to be found. There's a light that can spring forth even in that darkness to overwhelm and overpower and overcome it. And out of that, well, even as Pastor Ron said earlier, quoting the scriptures, though sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in the morning, which makes the sorrow somehow special because if God allows it, then there's a purpose in it. And you might say, well, that's not a message that I want to hear. And indeed, many people in our world would say that. But what a shame to miss the prophetic promise that can only be found as we bring our sufferings to the Lord who suffered for us and trust in him through the night so that the joy that comes in the morning will be a joy that we really understand. In fact, I think those who experience joy in the morning are only the ones who have gone through the suffering of the night. And ultimately, it's the son of righteousness who rises with healing in his wings, as the prophet Malachi said. There's something that the Magi must have understood about this. At least they put themselves on a pathway that meant a lot of hardship and challenge and risk for them. And their mission that they carried out, which was to, to follow the star of the Lord, to follow the word of the Lord, in order to find the son of the Lord, in order to see the king of kings that had been born. Their mission was one that, that they carried out by faith. And so we can look at what they did and how they gave and find a message in it. Part of that message is that God makes fruitful invitation to all people. But it does mean that you and I have to get up out of where we are and go to him. Of course, that's only because he's already come to us. But you see what I'm saying. There's a response to be made. And if we respond by seeking, by asking, seeking, and knocking for the Lord on his door, then that invitation is answered and multiplied. What God has promised, he produces. And the production of it is plentiful. It abounds into a grand harvest. And that harvest is visible. It becomes meaningful to people around us because as we are living our lives in the light of the Lord, following his guidance, we are led into the place of purity, real worship that purifies our soul. How many times have you experienced that you're having a hard day or a bad day or you're feeling depressed or you're, maybe you've sinned, maybe you've faltered, maybe your, your tongue got away from you, you said some things that you shouldn't have said, you did some things that you shouldn't have done. Or maybe you're just in a place where someone has hurt you or you're feeling discouraged or there's an insurmountable obstacle or task ahead of you and you open up the word and you're not feeling it, but what you recognize is this is the word of life. This is the, this is the word of God and here in the scriptures I can be reminded of his presence and restored in my awareness of his reality and just reading the word brings about peace. There's a purity in that. You're being purged of that doubt and fear, anger, and brought to the place of readiness to recognize God. You'll get guidance out of the word. How about a time when you play a worship song because you're just feeling distressed or agitated, and as you come to worship the Lord, you're reminded of his love, and you're restored in the strength that recognizes God's going to see me through no matter how hard this present moment will be. He's seen me through the past. He'll see me through again. Sometimes we get correction in those moments, reading the word, praying, meditating, listening for the Lord. I'm just going to listen to what God has to say. And I'm going to go out and take a walk around the house right now and just hear the Lord speak to me. And the Lord might say, you know, you need to ask forgiveness of someone or you need to stop doing that thing, that, that, that habit that's getting you off track. Or I am inviting you to do something new, to give of yourself, to maybe give a gift to someone else of resource or time or talent that you wouldn't be inclined to do otherwise, but I'm, I'm leading you to do that. And you find in all of those things the blessing of the Lord. And when you carry it out and you respond to what he's saying and, you've, and you obey, your life becomes a prophetic witness and a point of ministry to the world around you. That's really the, the, the mission of the Magi, isn't it? After all, 2,000 years later, we are still talking about these men who traveled all this distance to find that baby and to give those gifts. And those gifts, which were extremely valuable in their natural commodity form, nevertheless, there's no, 
no way that the value of those gifts would have lasted these 2,000 years and still be relevant to you and I in today's message if it weren't for the fact that within the gift was even more value in the spirit, the symbol of what they represent, and the model that they are for us of how we also should follow the ways of the Lord in our lives and give our worship to him. Maybe you're joining us in this series and you, uh, you're wondering, well, who are these Magi men? These were a priestly class of scholarly advisors who were uh, appointed in the, the courts of these eastern kings. And these particularly were probably from the, the Persian Empire, which was sort of the successor empire to the Babylonian Empire. And as I mentioned earlier in the message, the, during the time of the Babylonian exile, the Jewish people had been there in Babylon and actually had had positions in the court of kings. In fact, Daniel has a whole book about him in the Old Testament. And he was a magi, probably, in the sense of he was a wise man in the court of the Babylonian king who was faithful to God and to his scriptures. He faced persecution because of it. In fact, he was sentenced to death in a, in a lion's den but the Lord shut the mouth of the lion. So while it was a bitter moment for Daniel, he responded in faith. And the blessing was that Daniel's life became a witness to the Babylonian king and to the, and to the empire around him. And there were others that are described, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, all Hebrew men who were in the uh, same kind of circumstance as Daniel. They also were sentenced to death because of their faith to God, which ran contrary to the way of the world and the, and the, the secular system. Uh, that dominated around them, and they were sentenced to death in a fiery furnace, but God protected them. The fire burned all around them, but they were preserved. And in fact, those three men were in the fiery furnace, but there was a fourth man there with them, one like a son of man that was described. I put it to you that Jesus himself was Emmanuel, God with them in the fiery furnace. Now, these moments were testimonies. They provided a message to that empire and to the empire that followed it. So that years and, and generations, even centuries later, these Persian scholars who knew the skies, they knew astronomy, they knew the sciences of the natural world at that time, also revered the scriptures and looked in the natural world for the signs of the scriptures. And seeing that star, they followed it all the way to find the baby Jesus. These were men who were affluent. They were... Um, uh, politically empowered. They probably weren't kings, even though we sing, you know, we three kings. There was probably more than three of them. The three probably reflects the gifts rather than the givers. Um, and, and we say there were probably more of them because it would be unusual for s such a small retinue to make uh, such a uh, significant journey. But they probably weren't kings themselves, but more were ambassadors of the king, so to speak. But their level of empowerment of wealth and the resource that they give demonstrates that the word of God that said, even the Gentile kings will bow before my son, my Messiah, my, the one that I am sending, is fulfilled by the message of the Magi. And as we've also seen and discussed, it's also uh, the open door to all humanity that is seen in the Magi. These Gentile leaders who are saying, we come to revere the Jewish Messiah as king of all the earth. Their worship conveys so much, and that's been a key point of our discussion over these past weeks. They fall to the ground when they see the Lord, baby Jesus. Now they're coming, he's probably anywhere from birth to two years old, but still a young child, and they are presenting him these extraordinarily valuable gifts. We've talked about how the Godhead is actually reflected in the gifts, gold, the strength and beauty and treasure of the Creator, Father God, enthroned forever and above all. Frankincense, which was an element derived from, uh, from plants, actually, a kind of a residual resin that could be compressed into oil or pressed into uh, powdery incense. And it was utilized both for the anointing oil that uh, is specifically specified in the scriptures, for priests and for kings, and also in the worship of the Lord that took place in the temple, where at the altar, the, uh, the incense would be burned, lifting a fine fragrance to the Lord. That, that cloud, that, that vapor that rises from the material world into the spirit realm, as it were, is symbolic of the Holy Spirit of God, the spirit of purity who leads us into right worship. And then finally, myrrh 
which was also an incense and also a perfume, very fragrant and lovely to smell, bitter to taste. It was used for medicinal purposes and describes the healing. Healing through bitterness. Something burned and gone and yet bringing forth health and wholeness. It is the bitter blessing of the martyrdom of the Messiah, the witness of Jesus on the cross who comes to suffer for you and I in order to save us. Myrrh represents Jesus. And it represents him in a most prophetic way. The harvest of faith that God is calling us to is a prophetic harvest. Each of these gifts that the Magi gave is a kind of prophecy in itself. It demonstrates how Jesus himself is king and prophet and priest because the gold is the element of kingship and the incense is the element of priesthood. And myrrh has this prophetic quality to it. It has a message about what is to come. But it is a bitter blessing. It is a difficult message to receive. Myrrh itself means bitter. Again, it is derived from a plant. It's this aromatic resin. And as I mentioned, it's used in incense, but also was used medicinally and for uh, relief of pain. And at the end of life, it was used as an embalming agent, something that would be placed upon the dead body of someone being prepared for the tomb. And because of its fine scent, it would help to cover what is obviously the very unpleasant odor of decay that a, a, a dead body will, will naturally begin to exude. It prophesies that Jesus, who is born new, is still born to die. He came to die, to be that man of sorrows that Isaiah prophesied about. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 53, you'll see the passage. And it's a, it's a message that nobody wants to hear. A message of suffering, a message of hardship. Who will believe it, says Isaiah? Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? The arm of the Lord means what God is doing, the productive, purposeful work of God and its strength that reaches out and accomplishes. And Isaiah is saying, will anyone actually look and see this bitter harvest? Will they see what God does? Out of a dry place where it looks like nothing can grow, he brings forth growth. But the growth that he brings, nobody is admiring it. Now, the Magi actually are admiring this child. But remember, they came to King Herod, the king of the Jewish people at that time. And Herod lies and says, oh, I want to worship him too. But what Herod is really going to try and do, and we'll talk about this on Christmas Eve, is he's going to try and kill Jesus. He doesn't succeed, but he does kill others. Again, a, a bitter moment in the biblical story. The people of Israel that are familiar with the scriptures and tell the Magi that the star means that there's a child to be born in Bethlehem don't accompany the Magi to be there. So there's only a few that are observing what's going on, but those few that see it rejoice in it. They bow down and worship. But it's not because they're seeing it with human eyes and fleshly vision, because the appearance that of of what God is doing doesn't appeal to that kind of a vision. It doesn't attract people on that basis. In fact, it says here that this man of sorrows grows up to be despised and forsaken by people, acquainted with grief. People hide their face from him. They despise him. They don't esteem him. Nevertheless, he carries our griefs. He carries and bears our sorrows. He is stricken and pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He is scourged. That means whipped. But his scourging is our healing. By his stripes, we are made whole. The wounds of Christ make us whole. That's why you and I celebrate this bloody moment. How is it that, can you imagine that we, as a people, for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus, have enshrined in our places of worship an element of, of capital punishment. The cross is a sign of death by government decree, a painful, horrific, bloody death. We look at a crown of thorns and we don't see it for the horrible mockery and, 
and terrible physical pain that it produced when it was shoved under the brow of Jesus, we see it as the prophetic promise of the glory of the resurrected king. And well, we should, because it is. But the only reason we see it that way is because we have seen it through the eyes of God. We have come to understand it by the grace of God, according to the mysterious message of myrrh, the bitter blessing that is brought forth by death into life. And we realize that this death, the death of Jesus, means life to us. But will we go the extra step and recognize that that one who died for us and rose again says, if you want to follow me, follow me to the cross and pick up your own. Follow me into the grave and be buried with me so that you can be resurrected with me. Yesterday, I baptized four young people in a tomb that we have out in front of our church. Did you know that we have a burial ground in front of our church? It's the tomb of Christ. There's no body in it. That's because the body that was in it, the body of Christ, has been resurrected. And now anyone who wants to come into the body of Christ goes into that tomb. Because the waters of baptism, our baptistry, is a burial ground. It's a place where we bury our old selves, our sin, and our sin nature. And we are resurrected alive in Christ. But you say, well, I've been baptized, and I hope that you have, but I still struggle with sin. Yes, because you and I are still people who are living in the world of darkness, but now we have a light within, and we have an answer for our sin. If we say that we have no sin, we lie, and the truth is not in us. But if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and he does that by the blessing of his blood and by the sacrifice of his life. His sacrifice makes us whole. And his sacrifice is seen in the symbol of myrrh. Stick with me now for the remaining few minutes of the message. I want to speak about myrrh. We've talked about how it also is part of the anointing oil of the priest. That means that to be the Christ, which is what Christ means, anointed, anointed in the spirit, is to become someone who is willing to be acquainted with grief. Now, you and I are to be Christians, which isn't about what the world thinks that it's about. And sadly enough, sometimes it isn't about what you and I might think it was about. If we're not careful, we could fall into the trap that the Pharisees walked in, fulfilling all kinds of religious ideas about what God wants, but totally missing the message of what God is leading us in. And what he's leading us in is people who are willing to suffer for others, people who are willing to lay down our will in order to prize God's. And people who are willing to forgive those who do wrong to us, even if they don't deserve it, quote unquote, even if they don't ask for it, because we have been forgiven so much. People who are willing to show love in the face of hate, and people who are willing to hold on in hope in the midst of trying times and challenges. That's the real anointing. The anointing that finds joy even in the midst of sorrow, that trusts God even in the dark of night, knowing that the Son of Righteousness will rise with all the healing that we need in his wounds. Myrrh was part of the royal beauty treatment of ancient times. It was the marriage cologne of the king. You can find these things described in the book of Esther in the Psalms. In Proverbs, it talks about it being part of the intimate relationship of a man and a woman, that the, the, the romantic bed of marriage was freshened and made lovely and, and enticing by the smell of myrrh that was put into it. And it is, in fact, a perfume of passion, of love. Seven times it's referenced in the Song of Songs, the Old Testament book about the love between a man and a woman betrothed to one another that is not only a celebration of the romantic and physical love which God has granted to people by which we are fruitful and multiply, but also a celebration of the love of Christ for his church. The passion of the Christ refers to Jesus going to the cross in bitter horror and bitter physical pain and spiritual distress. Why? Because of his love for you. His passion for you which may be bitter in the moment, but smells blessed in the nose of God, in the house of God. It is a fine fragrance of worship because it is the love of God for his people. That is the joy of the Lord and the joy that was set before Jesus that allowed him and enabled him to endure the pain. And, and, and even though he despised the shame of it, 
which is the, 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 the spiritual degradation of what sin is, he was willing to go through that bitterness for the blessing of having you with him and me with him, us together in him. As I mentioned, myrrh means bitter, and it is etymologically derived from probably something meaning flow or smear. It is, in fact, from the flow of sap, probably, that comes out of the thorny species of tree that, as I mentioned before, it very well may have been the very tree that gave rise to that crown of thorns that John chapter 19 talks about. I mentioned that it was used medicinally, added to wine or vinegar in the ancient Near Eastern society. It had a narcotic effect. It would help to alleviate pain and actually would put people into the sleep of death. Uh, And the reason why uh, we see Jesus being offered this bitter wine, wine mixed with myrrh, in uh, Mark chapter 15, also described elsewhere, for instance, John 19, is that it was a way to expedite his execution. It probably was reflective of a certain degree of, of humane concern on the part of the soldiers, but more importantly, they figured if we give these prisoners this doping wine, they'll be more complacent, they're not going to be screaming in agony, so it makes our job a little bit easier, and they will, they will f- slip into unconsciousness faster. It'll kill them faster. In fact, when Jesus tasted that bitter wine, he refused it. Not because he didn't want the bitterness, but because he did not want to be drugged as he went to his death. Because he chose to die. And every element of what he suffered, he knew was purposeful. He specifically said, I am going to experience all of this. I won't drink that cup of that bitter wine because I'm drinking the bitter cup of God's will for me. Not a cup that I necessarily desire to drink, but that I am willing to drink because of my obedience to God. And so he was awake and aware for every moment of it because he was doing it out of the passion of his desire that you and I would experience the fullness of life. Finally, it was an embalming agent, as I mentioned, and Jesus himself was embalmed with it. Not only are we told that um, Nicodemus procured a large amount of myrrh, to embalm his body with. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were both religious leaders at the time who were devoted to Jesus. We often speak badly about the Pharisees, but there were some among them, and even on the council of the Sanhedrin, who revered Jesus. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea provided the tomb for Jesus. Nicodemus went out and bought pounds and pounds of of the spices that were used to embalm the body, particularly to prepare And you can see that it was very, very costly. In fact, there's a woman that comes to Jesus in the days prior to his sacrifice, and out of her great devotion to him, her worship to him, she does what the Magi did. She falls at his feet. She breaks open this bottle, this perfume myrrh, and she spreads it on his feet. Judas, who was, of course, the one that betrayed Jesus, who was the treasurer and was just looking to enrich himself, quite frankly, pretended that his offense was that this could have been spent on the poor. And he mentions that that single bottle was worth 300 denarius. Uh, In other words, 300 days wages, almost a year's salary just for that bottle of perfume. It shows you how valuable the gift of the Magi was. But Jesus says, don't despise her for doing this. This was to prepare my body for burial. Jesus knew because he had marked the message of myrrh from the beginning. He knew that what had been spoken over him, even over him by Simeon in the temple at the time of his dedication, was true. That he would be for the fall and rising of many. And that there would be a sword that would pierce his mother's heart. There would be nails that would pierce his hand because of the bitter blessing of the message and the mission of the Messiah, but he was willing to go through it. You and I are called into something that we are not able to sustain without the anointing of the Lord. The church of Smyrna in the book of Revelation exists in a city whose name came from myrrh. The name of Smyrna, therefore, means a bitter place, probably because they were known for having groves of these trees and producing the perfume of myrrh. There's only two churches that Jesus addresses in the book of Revelation when he comes in his resurrected form and appears 
to John on the island of Patmos. It's a time of intense persecution in the Christian church. And there's only two churches out of the seven that he gives messages to, that he writes letters to, that receive only commendation and no critique. And one of them is the church in Smyrna. The other, by the way, in Philadelphia. The city of love. Love among brothers and sisters. But in Smyrna, they have experienced intense persecution and suffering, but they have been patient in it. They have borne up under it faithfully. And Jesus says, keep on being faithful even unto death. He describes to them a period of 10 days, which is probably symbolic. In other words, he's saying, you're going to go through a time. Listen now, because this is for you today, church. Jesus is saying, you're going to go through a time where things aren't necessarily going to get better. They're going to get harder. And some of you are going to have to go to the grave in that. But hold on to faith anyway. How can you hold on to faith beyond the grave? Because the one who is speaking to you is the one who has already broken the grave and broken out of it. He begins the book of Revelation. He begins his message to them by saying, Behold, I am the one who was alive and dead, and now I'm alive forevermore. So hold on to that, and you will receive a crown as well. Not a crown of thorns, but a crown of life. But would it be a surprise to you if that crown of life comes to you as a crown of thorns? After all, doesn't the message of Jesus come to you and I in the form of a cross? Doesn't the blessing of his body come to us broken into pieces that we can partake of it and pour it out in the cup of blood that is the covenant of forgiveness? It is not always easy to hope in the Lord. And if you and I suppose that God's message to us is everything is good and rosy and everything is always going to be easy, we will have missed the message and the meaning of myrrh, which is that there is a purpose in our suffering if we will turn our suffering over to God. That doesn't mean suffering for sin. If you and I are suffering because of our sins, God has an answer for that, but there is nothing sacred about suffering for your own sin and continuing to sin. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. But if you will turn to God and follow his ways, it doesn't mean that there will be no more suffering in your life. In fact, what Jesus says is, you can expect that the more you follow me, the more persecution you're going to face, the more hardship you're going to face. But I've already faced it for you. In the world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And how did he overcome it? Through rage and anger and strength? He went like a lamb to the slaughter, silent, suffering, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, but by his stripes we are made whole. There are bitter blessings that the Lord allows in our life because there's a prophetic purpose within it. And oftentimes the, the greatest healing is released in the time of the most difficult hardship. If you are in such a time, turn to the one who holds hope and health in his hands. Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, who is our Savior, the great prophet who promises that if you will remain faithful and hold on, you will receive a crown of life and wholeness. Sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning, and the Son of Righteousness rises with healing in his wings. Lord, we turn to you in our need today. We acknowledge our sins, ways that we have failed you, ways that we falter, places where we are tired, times in which we are angry, anxious, agitated. And we ask you, Lord, to forgive us. Forgive us for ignoring your promise. Forgive us for forgetting your word. Forgive us for doubting your goodness. Forgive us of our sins. And Lord, forgive those who have sinned against us. Forgive those who have been impatient with us, who've lashed out at us. Maybe in our homes, Lord, there have been times in recent days where we've been on edge and at each other's throats because of the agitation of this time or being cooped up together, if that's the case. Or maybe there is uh, circumstances in our workplace where we have experienced bitterness or persecution. Forgive any and all, Lord, who have at any point done any wrong to us and help us, Lord, to seek and ask for forgiveness of any that we have wronged. Because, Lord, we want 
to live according to your peace, according to your grace, according to your love. Lord, turn our eyes to your light and remind us of your truth. And whatever you would have us to go through, Lord, if there is any hardship that you ask us to walk through, any burden that you ask us to bear, we pray that we would do it not by our own might, nor by our own strength, not according to our own wisdom, but in the anointing of your spirit. I pause this prayer to remind you, brothers and sisters, anyone to whom these words reach, the invitation of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No temptation has come to you except that which is common to all people, but the Lord will also give you a way out, a way up, as you bow before him. He will raise you up in his strength. Lord, we trust you with any sickness, any illness, any debt, any depression, and we ask that you would heal our disease, that you would bring joy for our sorrow, that you would take us out of the place of lack and into the place of plenty. And Lord, we believe you even now so that even before we see it, even before we feel it, even before we could know it in the natural, we believe it by faith in the Spirit because we know that you are good and that you who speak also fulfill. You make good on all your promises. Lord, I pray that you would receive unto your heart now any and all who would turn again to you or even for the first time and if there are any who are praying this prayer, pray with me and I will agree with you about giving your life to the Lord today. Just simply repeat these words after me. Lord Jesus Christ, forgive me of my sins. I believe you have forgiven me and I want to live for you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Guide me by your Holy Scriptures. Unify me to your holy body and keep me faithful in you. Amen.